Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. We're going to do the last of the four. It's uh, just before Tisha B'Av. Um, it brings the story uh, to its uh, sort of sad uh, conclusion. That's the whole point of this uh, period in history. And uh, where we left off uh, last time, the uh, Romans had uh, directly uh, taken over control of... Uh, can you hear? Is that okay? Not really? Some people are telling me they can and some people say they can't. Well, my wife is telling me she can't. I will try my best. How's that? The um, I'm not used to this. But uh, the, Ro- the Romans d- took over direct control of Eretz Yisrael, and uh, they named it the province of Judea and was under a procurator, and uh, things got worse. And one of the reasons that things got worse is because everybody thought that having a non-Jewish ruler will be having a ruler who's sort of neutral in the internecine Jewish wars. He won't be in favor of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, anyone else, and to play fair. In point of fact, what happened was that the Roman procurators, by and large, certainly after the first couple, were uh, office holders who looked at their job as a chance to make money and uh, pursue uh, official corruption, and uh, it doesn't take a lot. As we saw, the Romans took over direct control, and nobody ever figured that it would turn out as bad as it did. And one of the main reasons we saw it turn out as bad as it did is because when you have such a big cultural difference between people who are not Jewish on the one hand and people who are on the other, especially in those days, uh, those cultural differences and prejudices came to express themselves in ways that people hadn't foreseen. Uh, or in simple English, to have a person who wasn't Jewish to be governor of Judea, he had someone of great tact and extreme uh, delicacy, and that's not usually you got for a Roman governor. As I said before, the Roman emperors themselves, like Augustus Caesar and Tiberius, very interestingly, uh, who were smart people, otherwise they wouldn't have been the head of Rome, had that kind of tact simply for politics reasons. As I indicated last week, the U.S. government doesn't permit the soldiers running around in Saudi Arabia to go with a cross or a and David, not because they're in love with their ruler, but they don't, want, they don't want to make a fight for nothing, you know, under the circumstances. Well, not every Roman governor was like that. As I saw, Varus and Pontius Pilate and some of the other guys, they want to throw their weight around them, even though the Roman emperors themselves as it happened, didn't permit it to happen, did not permit that to happen. I remind you, Pontius Pilate was fired by the Emperor Tiberius, as I mentioned last week, because he played with the rules. He brought in a shield with uh, pictures on it and things like that, which, technically speaking, even according to Gomorrah, is not exactly a violation of the rules. But nevertheless, Jews at that time were such a nature they didn't want any images whatsoever. There was a strong, bitter ideological war. Ideological, I say, war at that particular moment in history between Judaism on the one hand and paganism on the other. And uh, I'm talking about at the ideological level, I, re- I repeat. And therefore, Jews were very uh, vigorous in their opposition to pictures at that particular uh, uh, point in history. I might uh, point out, as I did last time, it's worthy of uh, reminding us, that outside of the problems that you had in Eretz Yisrael itself, this was, so to speak, a golden age for Jewish proselytism. There were lots and lots of people in the Roman Empire, uh, Romans, Greeks, and various others, who were interested in Judaism, sometimes extremely interested in Judaism, and many of them went so far as to totally convert, and some went halfway, and so forth, and uh, it's just a very interesting period 
in that particular regard. Now, back to our story. As we saw last time, you had the Emperor Caligula, and then when he died, uh, he was taken over by Claudius, who was the next emperor, and without going through a whole disquisition on that, suffice it to say, Claudius wasn't the smartest guy to ever walk down the road, but he wasn't the dumbest either by any means. And one of the things he did was to reward his Jewish friend, uh, who, if you know the politics, helped him survive the assassination attempts and get him into office as Roman emperor, uh, the emperor Claudius, that is. And this was Herod Agrippa. You see that Herod family, was they always landed on their feet. You know, whoever won the next election, they're there. And uh, he, was, he did well under Caligula, now he did well under Claudius, and Claudius made him the king of Judea. And uh, this is the only time, he came back to Israel, it's the only time they actually had their own king. Uh, he was there for two, three years, a, a little less than that. And that's the last time he had a sovereign Jewish state since, until 1948. Okay, sometime in the years 40, 41, 42. And uh, Herod Agrippa, as he's called, very unusual figure. We, we cannot figure him out. Uh, was he interested in being a Jewish, Jewish king? Was he just a very, very clever politician? Um, both are indicated over there. The ambiguity that I'm talking about, for those that are interested, is reflected in the famous Gemara, Mishnah Gemara in Sota, where it says, and this is a story many people have heard, that when he was the king, they had the Hakhail ceremony in the Beis Hamikdash, and that's where you take out the Torah and read from Devarim, and one of the Pesukim he reads, and the king reads it, and one of the Pesukim he reads is that you cannot, that you can only have a Jewish, Jewish, Jewish uh, uh, person as a king, and uh, he started crying because his ancestry was dubious, and the people all cried out, we consider you our brother, which means that that was a testimony to the fact that he was popular. And, uh, and you can just imagine, by the way, if you were a, a, a patriotic Jew, and you went through Herod, and you went through this procurator and that procurator, and now you get a Jew, and he's willing to be a Shomer Shabbos, and he's willing to, to, to wear tzitzis, and uh, overall to be a nice guy, which apparently he was, uh, you'll take it. You feel like he's very lucky. And yet, at the same time, if you look in the Gemara, the, the Talmud Babi goes on to say this was a terrible sin, and he wasn't Jewish, or he wasn't fully Jewish, and they shouldn't have flattered him, and all this kind of stuff, and that's caused destruction in the temple. And those two competing uh, dynamics reflect the ambiguity that characterizes this entire period in Jewish history. Because we're now in the last 20, 30 years. The 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. That's the whole story. And uh, nothing was black and white, nothing was clear. This was the problem. Uh, when there's not political clarity, it's the worst thing. The State of Israel has this problem right now. What do they do? Everybody criticizes the, this prime minister and that prime minister, but then you ask the question, now what would you do? You see? And it's really tough, because to have vision, and to know where to go, and the proper policy is a gift. You see? Uh, I might sermonize and say the Prophet Yishayo says that when God is very angry, that God's way of punishing is halfway but fell, a terrible punishment is to cause the intellectuals and the smart people to lose their smartness. And so you can have the best car in the world, but God doesn't know how to drive, you're in real trouble. Well, uh, it's not clear. There are those who suggest that Herod Agrippa had plans to set up a business for himself, maybe rebel against Rome, set up a confederacy. Without going into all this, he suddenly died at a young age. And in those days, not always, but if you die in the middle of, a, of a Olympic Games uh, of, of an unknown disease, and this is the Middle East, chances are, you know, it wasn't entirely due to medical causes. But uh, whatever the case is, well, it's a fact. Wh whatever the case is, uh, when he died, the Emperor Claudius put in the procurators again, and that's the way it stayed. 
For the rest of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, it was one Roman governor after another. Now, Claudius himself, who was there until the year 54, uh, Claudius himself was not particularly anti-Semitic. He was just regular, like any Roman emperor. And he was determined to keep peace as much as possible in the Middle East, specifically if you're talking about the area of Judea, Everybody knows, like today, there's just a built-in tension between the Israelis on the one hand and the Arabs on the other. In those days, it's just taken for granted that there's going to be a terrible constant tension between the various different groups living in Eretz Israel because that's a key point in our story. Israel was no longer, after Herod, a unitary country with just Jews. It even wasn't even a country with an overwhelmingly Jewish population and a tiny non-Jewish population. But as a result of the policies, the deliberate policies of the Herodian dynasty, uh, Israel was already a uh, United Nations. That is to say, it was a territory in which there were significant areas, nobody took a census, I don't know, but significant areas of non-Jewish colonists, Greeks, Arabs, uh, Syrians, and uh, different groups brought in. To give you an example, the city of Shomer in Samaria was rebuilt by Herod as a, as a non-Jewish city, Sebast. And there are many other places along those lines. So when you go on these trips and you see this town and that town was built by Herod, doesn't necessarily mean it was built for Jews. Actually, most of the time it was built for non-Jews, which is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons you see a lot of Roman-era pagan uh, structures when you go to Eretz Israel. You kind of ask yourself, where's the Jewish stuff? Um, and that's the way it was. Now, this was going to prove to be a fatal weakness in uh, Jewish attempts to uh, offer any resistance whatsoever successfully to Rome. Because if you can't control your own backyard, uh, then you can't uh, fight a war. Right? Um, Israel today, the number one problem we know, uh, and they have plenty of problems, you know, you can line them up. The number one problem is not the Iranians and not the Egyptians, the others, the Arabs, right in the backyard. So how do you keep a, a nuclear base uh, safe if you have Arab towns, towns, I say, and cities, a few miles away? Well, you know, well, how do you do that? You understand? Now, I know what the United States did in World War II. They didn't ask any questions. They, they surrounded everybody up, right or wrong, constitutional, not constitutional and took them away from California. And after the war, they said, I'm sorry. But uh, that's not what happened in the time we're speaking about. The Romans, like the Herodians, fostered uh, these groups. Uh, they didn't want Israel to be a completely and totally Jewish area. And they were right from their point of view. And so the result is that uh, you know, the Romans were just too darn good at, what they, at, at, at uh, running countries, dividing and conquering, as the expression goes, divided emperor. And so, the 40s went by, and the 50s went by, and the situation got more and more tense. Josephus uh, chronicles, because he lived at this time, if you want to go into ugly details, you know, then came this, Cumanus, and then came Fatus, and then came this guy and that guy, and there was this incident that broke out between uh, a Jewish village and a Samaritan village, and somebody got killed walking in the road, a Jew, and then Jews went and tried to kill these guys, and then his relatives came out over there, and then a huge fight brought, broke out, and they ended up bringing the Roman army in. The Roman army wasn't sure who to back up, and then they took it to Caesarea, and eventually they kicked it all the way up to Rome, and they had to have a full case, and each side had to hire lawyers, and finally the Emperor Claudius decided in favor of the Jew, and uh, in this case, the Roman officer who had killed somebody illegally was killed, uh, which shows you that the Romans realized, at least under, when they were under normal emperors, that either you're going to have law and order and an a appearance of fairness, Appearance and reality of fairness, or you're going to have a civil war in your hands, you're going to have a revolt. And they weren't willing to do that at that time. But the tension is constantly building. Uh, furthermore, and this is even worse, there was a progressive breakdown of law and order in Eretz Israel. I'm talking about Jewish crime. I'll say it again. 
Jewish crime, I mean violent Jewish crime. Uh, during the period we're talking about, that's when it really erupts like a, you know, like a virus in the 40s and particularly 50s, uh, situations where you know, uh, the procurators are corrupt, uh, the local officials who are kept in power or, or, or are hooked up with them through uh, networking and political protection are therefore also going to be corrupt. Uh, crime being what it is, smart and clever people will step forward, take advantage of the situation. Uh, after a while, there's no such thing as any place in the world where if there's no police and, 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 and no uh, crime control, uh, bad people won't step to the fore. Jewish or not Jewish, it doesn't matter. And that's the curse and the plague that hit Eretz Yisrael in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And as I say before, the Romans, you know, every once in a while, they like the police involved, every once in a while you make a, a show raid. But in point of fact, uh, we all know, if you drive downtown, you're looking for drug deals, you, 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 you know, you're going to see it. And uh, that's the way it was over there. And so the result was that the worst elements and the worst aspects of Jews and the Jewish population were, so to speak, encouraged by the highly dysfunctional political situation that predominated in Eretz Yisrael. Okay? Now, it's weird, because at the same time, the Beis Amigdash was flourishing. As I said before, Judaism outside of Israel was gaining more and more uh, converts all the time. And plenty of people, like Tacitus complained about last week when I read from you, who are not even converts but want to come to Yerushalayim anyway and bring carbonus. And a person who's not Jewish is perfectly allowed to bring a carbon to the Beis Amigdash. And, uh, or they want to bring gifts. Um, we, the Mishnah records that uh, the Queen Helen from uh, Iraq, from northern Iraq, uh, Hilni of Adya Ben, the whole royal family converted to Judaism, and she eventually moved in the second half of her life to Israel, bought herself a big palace, like some people try to do nowadays, you know, you save your money and you get a nice place in Yerushalayim. And she donated palaces and uh, the things for the base of Migdash. So it's kind of a dissonance that on the one hand, uh, things were, you know, uh, how does it go? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. On the one hand, uh, if you went Pesach, millions of people, I mean, it's incredible, from all over the world, from all over the Roman Empire on the one hand, and from all over, from parts of Parthia, from Iraq, and, and places beyond the Roman Empire, on the other, uh, poured into Jerusalem. Same thing with Sukkot and the Simchus Beis Shoeva. In many respects, the Jewish religion was uh, busting. I might point out also that um, this is the famous period, Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, meaning yeshivas were flourishing as well. It's funny, yeshivas were flourishing, were, were, were flourishing as well. Uh, Yochum and Zakkai was, was, was active at this time, many other people that you hear about. And so uh, you say, pretty good. And yet at the same time, both in Josephus and in the Gemara, if you know how to read it, uh, you see the uh, harbinger of disaster. He gives you the gory details that under this procurator, so and so many crimes were committed, and the Sicarii started as a, a society of, a, of Jewish assassins, assassinating other Jews. They would you know, hang around in, in public and kill people and then run away uh, as terrorists do. And so we see the rise of crime reaching its crescendo, and we all know, because we live in such a time today, that crime, just like in chemistry, the quantity eventually becomes quality, so crime, when it reaches a certain level, converts into political terrorism. And that's what happened in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, we also find that there's a, therefore going to be a breakdown in law and order, because as I always say, and every people here, lawyers know better than I do, if there's a big breakout in crime, the courts can't handle it. You understand? 
I mean, why don't they arrest in the United States, for example, every person who smokes marijuana? It's against the law. Why don't they do it? You can't. You know, it's, it's too many. And that means the system is overwhelmed. And that's what happened in this period. So the Gemara, in its fashion, says 40 years before the basin mixture was destroyed, they stopped doing capital punishment. Uh, not because people were nice, but because crime and murders were getting out of hand. There was too many for the force to handle. And they stopped doing uh, the laws of Sota, which means morality is going down the drain because that's also what happens when crime breaks out. If you have criminals and they can run around with impunity, uh, what kind of uh, example is that set for the young people? You say, you can't do this and the other. This guy's doing it. He's got a Cadillac. Why can't I do it? You know, the, in other words, many of the unsavory aspects that we see, unfortunately, nowadays in broader society were not at all foreign to the Jewish situation in Yerushalayim and in other places at that time. Uh, again, the Gemara in its way says that 40 years before the Beis HaMikdash destroyed, the Shekhinah began to depart from the Beis HaMikdash. First it moved from uh, the Kodesh Kodashim to this place, to this place, to this place, to that place, eventually out in the desert and, and left. And what does that mean? It means, once again, you could see, if you had the discerning eye, Beis HaMikdash isn't what it was. The Shekhinah is not where it was. It's less. Uh, Beis HaMikdash is not what it should be. And yet, at the same time, in terms of the dissonance, the temple that I'm talking about was probably the fanciest temple that ever existed in Jewish terms. Herod, when it came to physical architecture, spared no expense, if that's what you're talking about. If you're talking about the physical side, the Chitonius, the Gashmius side, it was remarkable, as anybody who goes to Israel and you know, studies these things can see. Remember the giant stones that they show you and, and, and all that? Um, and as I said before, the basin makes looked very impressive, and yet the high priesthood was completely and totally politically prostituted to the authorities in power because they Roman governors like Herod himself and Herod Agrippa, and after Herod Agrippa, his son, Agrippa II, who the Romans didn't allow to be king of whole Israel, but just allowed to be part of Israel, but he could be the king of the galley, but he gets to control who's the Kohen Gadol, and what kind of system is that? And the result is that the Kahuna Gadol becomes the highest bidder, and we find situations, once again, confirmed in the Gomorrah, and then the Tosefta and places like that, where, uh, let, let me just give you an example. It's very, I'm sure many people know this. Uh, in Yuma, it talks about how you prepare the Kohen Gadol for Yom Kippur, right? And the Mishnahis, the Gemara Yuma, is talking about the late Second Temple period. That's what it is. That's exactly a picture. You remember, the high priest has to swear that he won't do like the Tzedukim and things. He's talking about the period of Purushim and Tzedukim. And one of the things is it says he's got to stay up all night. Uh, he should read something. If he knows how to read... Give him a book to read. If you don't know how to read, somebody should read for him and so on and so forth. Wait, stop. Kohen Gadol? Illiterate? Don't know how to read? Yeah, stop. You know, a famous professor once said, you, you want to know what you write your paper on? Keep reading, keep reading. And then when you see something that doesn't make any sense, stop. That's your, that's your dissertation topic. You understand? What is that? Kohen Gadol, don't know how to read? And there are many others they found. The Tosefta talks about the fact that they went out and had to get a Kohen Gadol from behind the plow. Uh, so, what is it? Was it a good time? Was it the best of times? Or was it the worst of times? Or was it both? See? And obviously, the point we're trying to make here is that from the Chitsonian angle, from the outward angle, it was the best of times in many respects. But from the internal angle, uh, it was the opposite. And uh, the thoughtful Jews, and the younger generation in particular, uh, got more and more angry. And as we saw, many sought an escape in a religion, in messianism, uh, 
many sought escapes in other forms of uh, religious endeavor. Uh, some people, most famously the rabbis, but you know, not only them, said you just have to be very realistic and, and you know, you live in through a bad times. Not everybody is lucky enough to live in the time of David and Melch. And uh, the number one uh, demand of the hour is to be political realists. Okay? You know, there's nothing we can do uh, politically, militarily, and physi physically against the Romans. Uh, Luxembourg cannot declare war in Russia. It's not going to work. And so we just have to grin and bear it. And uh, things could be worse, and the glass is half full and all the rest of that. But the younger generation increasingly becomes impatient with this kind of attitude as the 40s and 50s go on. And every time there's a particular outrage by the Romans, either intended or unintended, because you had both. You have Roman soldiers come in. They have no uh, familiarity with Jewish ideas. Uh, to them, the idea that you can't have a, a statue out or even a picture of an eagle on your uh, breastplate is like crazy. Uh, the same way we look at uh, people from uh, other cultures and they say, you know, how can, how can people actually, you know, believe this sort of thing or get uptight about it? And uh, that's all it takes. And so every time Pesach comes around, every time Sukkot comes around, all you need is one soldier, like Josephus, for example, says once that, you know, a bunch of Jewish kids started uh, catcalls at Roman soldiers, you know. Uh, you're this, and your mother's a that, and he moons them, and so forth. Next thing, it is a riot, and then the Romans charge the crowd and kill people. And every time that happens, you convert people over to the other side. You convert people away from being in favor of a pacifist policy, of a policy of just trying to live as best you can under the situation, and into one in which I want to follow Mir Kahana. I want to follow this guy or that guy, because they want to do something. And I know the way it's going on now is impossible. And God can't allow this to continue to happen. And this guy's telling me that if we stand up and do Chazak Be'amatz, we'll win like the Maccabees, we'll win like David and Melech, and let's do it. And it's a, you know, you, people get worked up that way. And it was wrong, as we know. It was just one big mistake. And people like Rabbi Yochum and Zach and others kept saying, it's just a mistake, don't go there. You've got to be sober. You know, the, there's a difference between uh, uh, daydreaming and uh, the, the real world. And the councils of moderation became weakened as the decades went by. Now, in the year 54, Claudius died. He was uh, poisoned and uh, taken by Nero. So it went to Nero, back to a Caligula-type situation, although he was no means as bad as, as a Caligula. And Nero uh, really had his mind on other things, <laughs> not who runs every little uh, province in the Roman Empire, although he wasn't as stupid as, as, his, as, as uh, many. You know, he didn't really fiddle when Rome burned. Uh, and I might say that Nero in his time uh, was engaged in a big war in the 50s and 60s against the Parthians, against the Iraqis, not far from the borders of Israel. And so the Middle East was a tinderbox. And uh, nevertheless, the people he appointed as governors uh, got worse and worse. It got really bad in the 50s when he appointed a rare case of an apostate Jew. It doesn't really happen, or didn't happen much as far as we can tell. I wasn't there that Jews converted to paganism. You know, pretty much after the time of Ezra Nehemiah, as the Gemara puts it in the early Second Temple, uh, Jews didn't really genuinely switch over to the Roman or the Greek religion. But once in a while they did. Naturally, this guy was a spoiled brat from a multi-millionaire Jewish family in Alexandria, the brother of uh, nephew of Philo, Tiberius Julius Alexander, and the Romans put him as a, so he converted away from Judaism to uh, paganism, and now he became the governor of Judea. Is that the best <laughs> personnel decision you can make? You know, it's, uh, it's an example of what I'm talking about. 
And so as the 50s go by and the 60s go by, and I can't give you all the details because this is not a seminar, you know, to, 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 but take it from me. And I, I sincerely invite everyone who's interested in it whatsoever, I can show you later one where you can, or it's online, all this, you see chapter and verse of what's the terrible incident that happened in 55 and what's the thing that happened in 56 and then on the next procurator in 58 and so forth. And believe me, this is what happened. And brigandages increases. You couldn't go on the roads anymore without uh, worrying about uh, you know, criminal attacks. And to add to all this, the question is, are you being attacked and killed by a Jewish robber band or by a Samaritan robber band or by a Greek or an Arab one? Now, it doesn't make a difference if you get killed, but if I'm talking in those terms, you see what I mean, okay? Uh, economically, situation went up and down because the Roman Empire went up and down economically during the reign of Herod, so you can't blame it on economics. It had to do with a very, very unpopular occupation and uh, a, a, a uh, situation which I described more than once here, which was based on a profound misunderstanding. The Romans were putting in charge and hooked up with the wrong people. You see? If they would have chosen to, to, to cooperate uh, with a different set of people, for example, Yochum Zaka or somebody like that, and they said, we'll put you in charge, we would have had the same peace and quiet, and everyone would have been happy. It would have been a completely different... It didn't need to happen. You understand? That's the big tragedy, but it happened. But it happened. Now, um, by the time you get to the 60s, the governors are getting really bad. And uh, Nero is spending all of his time uh, partying and, uh, you know, performing games and things like that. Um, and yet, you never know. Because Josephus himself, who lived at this time, tells the following story. That... Uh, he was a young fellow, he says, and a couple of Jews got arrested in one of these riots and they were shipped off like to the salt mines or something like that, I don't remember exactly, uh, sent off to a horrible fate. And they immediately formed a committee of Pidion Shvillium and uh, they should go to Rome and try to uh, lobby on behalf of these uh, people to get them out of their jail because that's what Jews do. Pidion Shvillium was alive and well in those days as it is alive and well today. I mean, didn't we pay a zillion dollars to Romania, to Russia, to Ethiopia, and all the well beyond what they deserve to get the Jews out of there? Yeah, they do. So uh, Josephus says that he goes with this group uh, to uh, Rome, and the ship gets uh, you know, shipwrecked, and he's the only survivor. He lands in the bottom of Italy, and he makes his way to Rome, penniless. But once he's there, he finds out where's the Jewish community, and he says he wants to do what he can to uh, get the prisoners out. I'm just giving you a vignette that gives the realities of life at that time, and, uh, they, and basically, that's the way this opinion swinging works. You've got to find out the right person to contact. It's all, life's all about contacts. And so, uh, they, eventually, he hooks up with the demimon, with the, with, with the uh, world of actors. And uh, there's a Jewish actor, not from, I mean, I'm asking you a question. To be on the Roman stage in the 60s is not a good, even... To be in the, American, in the Israeli stage is not a good place for a Jewish person. But to be on the Roman stage at that time, you know, in the Roman plays, not the Greek plays, in the Roman plays, you know, when it calls for someone dying, they kill you on the stage. You see? They would have a slave there who would get killed so because the public wants to see the blood, as opposed to the Greeks who were more refined. Therefore, you just wear a death mask. You know, you like to play like you're dead. So uh, here's a Jewish person uh, doing this by birth, obviously not a Shomer Shabbos or whatever, and uh, he is a big activist in Roman party life, in the Hollywood scene. And uh, therefore he knows a lot of people, including the empress. 
uh, Nero's wife, uh, Nero's second wife, the one who persuaded Nero to kill his mother and the first wife, Papia Sabina. And uh, so she's a piece of work. But at this particular time, she's like Madonna. She's interested in Kabbalah, or in this case, Judaism. <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. Nothing changes. And, uh, and she has the same relationship to Kabbalah like Madonna. Does. And uh, the guy says, so Josephus meets him, and he says, I need your help to get these guys out. He says, I'll get you in touch with the empress. You know? She knows we go to Kabbalah classes together or something. <laughs> and, uh, and it works. You know? He gets an interview with her. And she gets and she and she says, I'll help you out, and the guys get out. So it's Nero, it's Rome, the Emperor doesn't like the Jews, it's a hostile environment. Papia Sabina was no Tzedekis, take it from me. And uh, and yeah, look at and, and the guy who helped him wasn't what you call a from Jew. And uh, you never know. It's like Agrippa was with Caligula. But sometimes a person feels the call of duty and they say, Now we need you to step up to the plate. This is this is your reason. And the guy helped. Okay? So it goes to show you that it was, as I keep saying, a very confused type of situation. And yet, the same emperor, this empress, Sabina, she appoints one of her best friends uh, to be the next procurator in Judea. Guess he's Florus, who uh, is from Turkey, a, a Greek, and uh, a, a profound anti-Semite. So how do you explain that? Same like you explained with Madonna, you know, these things happen. And uh, now you have a procurator who, Josephus, who was writing for the Romans, says, you, my readers, know this guy was corrupt beyond all belief, and he's the cause of all the trouble that happened afterwards. It means he didn't, it was so obvious, he didn't even need to find the need to flatter to deny what happened, because this guy, guess is Florence, when he comes there, uh, he basically commits un paralleled embezzlement and robbery and uh, is uh, in bed with the criminals more than anyone before him and within a short time runs up such a notorious record that he's afraid that his crimes will be uh, reported in Rome. You know, there's a limit even there and uh, he becomes determined. And Josephus tells this story. He becomes determined to provoke the Jews into rebellion so that the result will be a huge war and everybody will die and he'll get away with his ill-gotten gain. And that's what he succeeded in doing. You know what I'm saying? Yes. He did succeed in exactly that. That son of a gun turned out the base of Megiddo, Zord, Yerushalayim, all the rest of it, just so he could get out of the whole thing. Because once a war happens and everybody's worried about this, you don't pay attention to who was the governor beforehand and all, and all the rest of it. And he got away with it, as far as we know. Uh, specifically, um, there was a... Uh, uh, always bad blood, as I said before, at this time, between the Jews on the one hand in Israel and the non-Jews that were over there, the Arabs, the Greeks, and the others. Nothing has changed in this regard. Um, Caesarea was a particular hotbed because Caesarea was a city built for non-Jews by Herod. And originally no Jews were even allowed in. And after a while, Jews started to come in, but they're a minority in the city. And within a short time, there's the Jewish neighborhood and there's everything else. And the Jews being Jews, and the Greeks being Greeks, uh, hate each other at an ideological level, and therefore at a, uh, what shall I say, at a street fight, neighborhood level. It's like in New York, you know, the fights between this, uh, gangs of ethnic, and, and that one. Right? And you have knife fights. And you have uh, battles all the time. And the Romans didn't do anything about it. From the Roman point of view, it's like, yeah, can't keep it up. 
Okay? You know, uh, divide and conquer. That's good. Uh, and so, soon enough, sooner or later, you know, the incident breaks out. Where, uh, and the details are, it's too detailed to go into, but, you know, the, 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 the Greeks purchase a piece of land right next to a shoal, and then they start building there using uh, hammers, and the, the Jews complain it's, it's disturbing the dominating, and then, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, and this one pushes that one, and then you have major fights going on there all the time, and this one sending out their champions, and that one sending out their champions, and each side appeals to the Roman governors, and the Roman governor basically says, you know, how much are you bribing me, and how much are you bribing me? And uh, at one point, he basically says, a plague in both your houses, go to it and, you know, let the best man win. And then afterwards, when the Jews win that fight, he arrests the Jews. All this was a, a deliberately, Josephus says it, deliberately done to uh, get the Jews riled up, that they'll, they'll rebel. And then he goes to Yerushalayim and Pesach time, and the people there already hate him, and he knows that they hate him. But the leaders of the people, the Kohanim, the uh, rich people, the uh, magistrates, they call them the Dayan, the Sanhedrin, they tell everybody, cool it, cool it, cool it. And uh, he's looking for trouble. And so as soon as somebody insults somebody else, he has them charge the crowds and kill a whole bunch of Jews, I mean, thousands, running down the streets. Uh, you understand? The Romans are an organized army, obviously, and uh, Yerushalayim it doesn't have the widest streets in the world. And if they charge in the you know, legionary formation, you can kill her. It's like a killing machine. And people get trampled and... Uh, even Agrippa II, who's this Jewish prince who isn't really a good Jew, he says, this is getting out of hand, and the governor says, you know, you basically shut up and get out of the way. And uh, what's this all about? By the time he leaves, and again, you have to read inside to see what happens on day one and day two, and this and that. And by the time he leaves, the whole city is seething, and that's what he wanted. Okay? That's what he wanted. I say all this because... It's necessary to put in the proper perspective the famous story that we hear in the Gemara, which says that the incident that destroyed the base of Megish was Kamsa by Kamsa. Okay. I'm sure everybody, most people know that the Gemara in Gitin and in the, and in the, the Medrash Rava tells a very, in the rabbinical literature, they tell a very famous story that there was a Kamsa and a Bar Kamsa, and you know, a guy invited one guy, and the other guy showed up, and he threw him out. And, uh, and he got angry at the fact he was thrown out. He got angry at the rabbis, it says, because they stood there and didn't intervene on his behalf. And uh, then he went to the Roman emperor and said, the Jews are rebelling against you. This is a highly simplified version, radically simplified version of what happens. And even the Gemara means, this is the straw that broke possibly the camel's back. And I'm not even sure about that. You know, it's, it's one particular incident. Uh, as you see, there were decades and decades of this building up prior to anybody named Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. I might say for those that are interested in this, that according to Josephus, there was a guy named Kamsus Bar Kamsa, who was a buddy of Agrippa II, who was a member of these uh, Herodian mafias, you might say. And so uh, who knows who these guys were? You know, when the rabbi said, we're not intervening in, in, in a fight between Bugsy Siegel and, uh, you know, Mayor Lansky, I wouldn't, in, I wouldn't intervene either. You understand? It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky business. Uh, but whatever the case is, right, whatever the case is, the point is that things had been building up long-term, structurally even, certainly in terms of political dysfunction, and to a large degree, religious dysfunction. The temple was in the wrong hands. It wasn't 
perceived by the public as serving the purpose for which it was designed. The uh, official relig religious leadership were the priests, the Kohanim, who didn't come out looking good in all this. Uh, the wealthy, the powerful, had to, by the nature of their vocation, uh, get along with the Romans, get along with the authorities. Uh, they were already held in great suspicion by the great public. Uh, you have all the elements for a French Revolution. You, understand? you have all the elements for uh, a, an explosion. And that's what happened. Because when Gessius Florus, as Nicephus says, left the city, uh, the Jews were already seething in revolt. Uh, there was a small Roman garrison left behind. And the most extreme elements of the Jews who were angry uh, became leaders and took control. I don't want to overdo the, the simile, but I'll just use a code word. You understand what I'm saying? You know, the Merikahanis took control. Okay? Not that it's the same thing, but you understand what I'm saying. And uh, what do I mean when I say that? These are people who always have been arguing for some kind of armed action against Rome. But they had always been marginalized, and they had never been able to command the uh, vital center, shall we say. They had never been able to g gain the you know, hearing and, and respect of the broad public. The broad public, generally speaking, is always conservative in most situations. You know what I'm saying? In a normal society, the broad public, generally speaking, is rather conservative. Uh, because they generally, in a normal society, they kind of all have an investment in the status quo. But when the normal situation disappears, and you have breakdowns of normality, whether in the religious side, whether in the military, governmental side, whether in, you know, the, in, in, in terms of national pride, or other aspects when you have that. So all of a sudden the conservatism you know, kind of disappears and is replaced by an appeal of people who argue for extreme answers to a situation. And when you marry that together with uh, religion, then you have a very uh, difficult situation on your hands because, you know, personally, it's what, you're not from, you don't believe that, that, that Hashem will back us up if we take on the Roman army? You think it's beyond them? You know, uh, we'll throw your kids out of school, you know. Uh, you, you, you end up with these kinds of, of, of rhetorical stances, and the Romans, of course, by their actions, didn't help. Okay. And this is the great tragedy uh, that happened, because um, we're not exactly sure what the sequence of events is, but Kamsa uh, um at a certain point, the Roman, the, the, uh, a group of Kohanim say that they should no longer accept sacrifices from the emperor, which is a political statement, meaning, and it's in the Gemara, and in the Josephus, I might say, meaning that the Romans, as part of their very clever strategy for running a huge empire, always co-opted the local religions. They did not make the mistake that the Greeks had made with the Jews, for example, of stepping on the Jewish religion time to trying to crush it. They provoked them with a huge Maccabean revolt for no purpose. I mean, what do they care if someone wants to keep Shabbos? You know what I'm saying? They're not Greek. Local people are going to have their own religious superstitions. Let the Jews have theirs. The Romans understood that. They went for the main prize that they sought, which was the secular prize. They wanted control, power, domination, money. If you want to believe, as I said before, that there are seven heavens, uh, good. Right? If your religion is in favor of opium of one kind or another, good. Now, uh, part of that was that uh, ever since the Herod built the second temple, Augustus Caesar uh, initiated a policy of uh, paying from the imperial treasury, paying to offer a sacrifice every day from 
the emperor uh, to the Jewish god. So, now he did that to the Egyptian god and to the Greek one and the others also. That's what I'm trying to say, you know. He participated. It's a sign of basic respect. It's a sign of basic respect. And after all, what does it cost? $10? It's the gesture that we're talking about over here. You understand? Uh, those who know European politics and others know the Queen of England and others, and now it doesn't matter so much anymore. But, you know, when you go to Scotland, you dress like the Scots, and when you go to another place, you do like it. It doesn't hurt. And it's a sign of showing respect for the local culture. And so the Roman emperors, big and powerful as they were, uh, deemed, I mean, Augustus and uh, Tiberius and Caligula and, and Claudius and Nero, all these guys, uh, paid every day to offer an animal as a sacrifice in the temple, which means uh, we respect your God. We respect your religion. Judaism isn't a piece of junk. It's not something stupid. The temple is a place worthy of respect. At the meaning, it became Jewish, obviously, but it's nevertheless an important sign. And when the Jews take that offering and offer it every day, they're being co-opted. They're saying, yes, we, we agree to that arrangement. You understand? We're part of the Roman Empire. We acknowledge your respect for our God, the quid pro quo being that we acknowledge your uh, temporal and civil dominance over us, and that's how it goes. So if they say, we're not going to take any carbon anymore, it's not a question of the dollar. It's a question of the statement. It means we don't recognize Rome anymore. And so that's what the Gemara means when it said, you know, he comps about comps and took the carbon and made it such a way that the Jews won't be able to accept the carbon and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's the political symbolism behind the gesture. And as I say before, the Talmud puts in its way, Josephus puts in its way, but they all agree with the same basic facts, which is that they discontinue this, meaning they're basically raising the flag of revolution. And the uh, Roman governor, Cestius Gauss, came down from Syria to see what's going on, and when he tried to enter the city of Jerusalem, the Jews attacked him and beat back this small Roman force, and uh, that was a, really a big mistake, because they went into armed action against Roman forces. Uh, that's really declaring war in the Roman Empire. And one thing everybody knows is you never go like that to a bear. Either walk away from the bear or shoot him in the head. But don't go like that. It doesn't make any sense. You just get him angry. I mean, what's the point of attacking a governor of Syria with six cohorts, you know, 3,600 men? You know, where's that going? But this was spontaneous. Nobody could control. It was revolution was in the air. National revolt was in the air. Uh, the people who said, we can do it. We can have another successful Maccabean revolt. If Hashem is on our side, I mean, there are hundreds of Pesukim like this in Telem. Well, it's one thing saying, Dominic, you put it into action? And he said, why not? You know, you can talk like that, and you get people all heated up. And so, the point I'm trying to bring out is that the Jewish war against Rome, the war against Rome, which I'm describing now, the beginning of, in the year 66, uh, took place as an afterthought, w without any planning. Uh, almost you know, uh, by itself, which is the worst possible way to ever get involved in a war. You, know, you don't do it because it just happened. You know, there we were, and this happened, that happened, next thing you know, we were at war with Rome. Where's your strategy? Where's your plan? Where's your leadership? What's your uh, game plan? How exactly do you plan to take on the Roman Empire? These are the questions that were not asked. And these are the questions, as anybody knows from basic military, you don't have to be a, a, a general. You know, these are the basic issues that decide who wins and who doesn't win a war. You know, when Judah Maccabee took control of the Maccabean Revolt, we weren't there, we know exactly what happened, but I know one guy came charismatically out in charge, and he knew what he's doing militarily, and he had a plan, and it was tough, 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 
And as we saw, even he was killed in battle against Turkey, but eventually they won. And uh, because they had centralized leadership, they had a strategy, they had a, they had a plan, they knew where they wanted to go, and they were able to take advantage of enemy mistakes. Everything I just described did not happen in the Jewish war against the Romans. Instead, people got angry at Florus, riots broke out, uh, the soldier insulted the people, they charged at him, next thing everybody's uh, real angry, another Roman force comes, the Jews attack that force, drive it away, there had been a garrison uh, in Jerusalem itself, which had to flee, and some of them were killed under a flag of truce and all kinds of things like this. It happened, it happened, it happened. That's not the way you go to war. And so next thing you know, the Romans are out, at least in Yerushalayim, and in many places in Eretz Yisrael. But I repeat, the, the, the fatal word is many. As you look through this map over here, which is roughly what Eretz Yisrael looked like over here, right? Here's the central Israel, and here's the north and all the rest of it. You can more or less do what I'm doing now and say, this area was in favor of revolt, this one wasn't. This one was said we're joining the revolt, this one said not. This one said count us in, this one said count us out. And then in addition to that, you have this place, this place, and that place, and that place, all over the map of uh, people who are not Jewish. You know, this Greek town, you know who they're going to side with? Who are the Arab tribes over here going to side with? The Jews or the Romans? You know? Who, who, and this one, and that one, and the other? Meaning, you didn't have, uh, what they call it, command and control. You didn't have anything you need to having a little chance to have any kind of a successful struggle against uh, the Romans. But nobody cares, because the, the flags are flying, the drums are beating, and God is on our side, and we will win. But of course, it didn't work out like that. So what happened is, first of all, all over Eretz Yisrael, fights broke out between Jews on the one hand and non-Jews on the other, local things. And again, we have gory details if you want to read all the depressing stuff. This Jewish town was wiped out by this neighboring town over here. And as a result, another Jewish town came and attacked them. And all these kind of internal sides. They could have had a nice little war just in Eretz Yisrael without the Romans at all. Okay? But it wasn't to be because the Emperor Nero, obviously, when the Jews went and revolted, he said, this is serious. This is serious. Uh, and so, put together a big army under his best general, Vespasian, Aspasianus, as Digmar calls him, who was a very famous and experienced general. He conquered Britain. Um, they put together an army of 60,000 Roman soldiers, and uh, that's 60,000 Romans in addition to the uh, mercenaries. The Romans were very, very smart at making war. You know that without me telling you. And at this period in history, they were pretty close to their peak efficiency. And if you're a Roman general, you don't waste good, highly trained Roman legionaries. What you do is you hire 10, 20,000 mercenaries from other groups, and uh, at the worst part of the battle, you send in the mercenaries. After all, somebody gets killed, you don't have to pay them, you know? And then when the time comes to, to mop up, you know, then you send in the, the professional guys. You see, you know, why waste a good soldier when you can get two mercenaries for half the price? That's as simple as that. So the Romans were professional, professional, professional. The Jews had no experience. I'll say it again. They had zero experience in having an army, running a war. How did they think they could take on the Romans? And the fact of the matter is, and listen to what I'm saying over here, they never did. There never was, as far as we can see from all that we're told, any kind of Jewish plan for offensive. They never drafted a Jewish army to march and fight the Roman army in the field. Immediately, from day one, it was a war of defense. They immediately undertook to raise forces and fortify every city, Yerushalayim, obviously, but all other cities all over Israel, towns and places like that in the Galilee, any place that's on a hill, to hold that against Roman siege. You know and I know that if I yield the offense to the other side, uh, I lost. Now, who, can, who can play chess uh, you know, except a genius, genius? Just totally defensively and, and, uh, and win. 
And so, for example, can we get the other map? Yeah, that's exactly it. Here's, here's a map very briefly. I mean, you don't have to be a big map reader to be able to see this. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. The Roman army landed at Akko, which was a Galicia city. Right? Here's Haifa, it didn't exist, but Akko was a city of Greece. And so the Romans could land their army here. And as you see, he immediately undertook to go here and then down here and here and here, meaning it wasn't that big battles. They, they cleared this area, then they cleared this area, and then they went up to Tiberia. The big, you see here is Tsipori. Here's a wonderful example, a sad example of what I'm talking about. Tsipori, many people have been on in Israel trips, right? I'm sure you've all been there. It's high up, it's very nice, very strategically located. You go up there, you can see all around you. Tsipori is a Jewish town, and uh, they said like this, nobody consulted us when we go towards the Romans, we check out. So as soon as the Romans came, they told Vespasian, they sent a message, you come take over the city, we don't want to fight. And he was very smart, divide and conquer. He said, fine, I'll give you uh, complete peace terms and all the rest of it. You want to encourage as many people to, to, to imitate their example. Right off the bat, as I say, you can see from this map over here, as I'm pointing at, here you have a town. How can you hold the line if your main city in the middle switches to the other side? Right? Even without going through a blow-by-blow -blow description like in West Point, you see that things like this doomed the Jewish efforts to mount a credible resistance against a highly professional Roman army from day one. You know, if you have a plan, tell me the plan. If you have an organized leadership, let's see, they didn't have a plan and they didn't have organized leadership. Instead, different factions arose in Yerushalayim. Uh, some were led by from like Rabbi Gamliel, Shem Gamliel. Others were led by people that weren't so from, and then there was this group. And, and, they, and like in any revolutionary situation, the different groups don't agree with each other and very often end up fighting each other. And that's what happens in the case of uh, the Jews. Because now begins the really bad part. Everything I said now was the good part. Now we're going to the really bad part. Because, uh, as you see over here, the Romans took them a year or so simply because this fortress over here and this fortress over there and that one. And you can go there today. You know, many people have gone to Gamla in the, in the Golan Heights, I'm sure. And this doesn't exist anymore. But uh, the, uh, the Jews hold up in some of these fortified towns. Uh, Vespasian was determined to take the towns. Uh, he launched big sieges. If you read in detail, and if you like that kind of stuff, Josephus has incredible detail about how they organized the siege and built the wall around it and cut off their ways of escape. And, uh, you know, and, and for the Romans, it was a science. That's all. It's just a, there's a way of doing it. They were extremely professional. You, know, you get close to the walls when they shoot down at you, build them embankments with uh, earthworks, and then you move your stuff up there, your, your, your machines up, and you shoot back at them, and then you move the embankments a little bit forward, and eventually you're able to get in up to the wall, and then you use the battering rams, or you undermine. There's a science to it. You know, a real professional, if this doesn't work, you try another trick. There's always a bag of tricks. And when nothing works, then there's always starvation. You understand? You, you just hold them out. And so, without going through all the details, the sad details, there was a long, big siege. Josephus tells us of Yodfata, that's where he was the commander. But eventually the town fell and was wiped out. Same thing here, same thing here. And within a year or so, not even quite a year, uh, the Romans were able to take over the whole Galilee and end completely any Jewish resistance down there. Then they spend another year uh, taking the rest of the coastline and basically everything but Yerushalayim, you know, crossing over here and taking over any Jewish town. So imagine, it's sad, Imagine if you're living in, I don't know, Beis Lechem or, you know, Hebron or whatever place it is in the in yard, and you have all these Jews, and they say, we're going to hold out, and then the Roman army really shows up. 
And then you say, oh, we can uh, defend ourselves against them. And then all of a sudden you see they're working like beavers. And uh, they're building these ditches and they're getting these machines in there. And next thing you know, you can't raise your head because every house is being bombarded, literally, with thousands of projectiles, whether they're fire or uh, um, catapult balls or uh, arrows or all kind of horrible things. And, uh, and what do you do then? You understand? What do you do then? What's remarkable is that they didn't surrender. At least what's recorded to us is over and over again, the Jews fought like to the last men, or close to it. And, uh, and the Romans said, okay, if that's the way you want to do it, then we'll kill everybody. Now, during all, by the time they finished this very scientific operation, uh, all you had left was the area of Yerushalayim. Why did the Romans go straight into Yerushalayim? Here's the saddest part of the story. Jerusalem itself was the main Jewish city, obviously, huge at this time. I know they said it in Eichel about the first temple, but that certainly was true. Uh, the second, just read the Medeshravo and other places, uh, or, or outside sources for that matter, to see how remarkably large uh, Jerusalem was at this time. Uh, a lot of Jews, a lot of different opinions. A lot of different opinions, a lot of factions. A lot of factions, a lot of armies, mafias, or militias, call them whatever you want. What they all have in common is everybody hates everybody else, and each one wants to take over. Now, this is not at all unusual in revolutionary situations. Um, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Spanish, you know, it's always there. there's always factions that form, and usually what happens is one emerges out on top, either in the good old way of one killing the others and being the only one left, or maybe someone through charisma is able to exercise leadership and gain the domination through personality of everybody else, and then exercise a unitary uh, command and offer a plan of fighting. None of this happened. No group was able to get o over the other. Instead, they launched bitter wars. Uh, take too long uh, to go through the details. And believe me, it's confusing even for me, and I know this stuff. I'm, I'm serious, I'm not being funny. There were many different factions, and you know how it goes. First, A is organized, is allied with B against C. Then they switch to C and they go against B, and then A, uh, you end up with that. And eventually, the Fighting took place in the base Hamikdash itself between one Jewish group and another, and uh, you know even around Kohanim Barfin Karbon, it's like a surrealistic scene, and uh, it reached the crescendo of self-destructiveness with an incident which is notorious both in the Gemara and in Josephus, where each group burned the supplies of the other group. Again, the Gemara has its way of putting it. It says there were three rich people in Yerushalayim. Many will remember this story. One had enough wheat, and one had enough of, 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 of wood, and enough oil. They had enough supplies to last a very long siege. It wouldn't be in starvation. And A destroyed the, the supplies of B, B destroyed the supplies of C, and C destroyed the supplies of A. So everybody was successful. And, and what was the result? The result was that the Romans held off for a year, maybe more. year, maybe even two years. It's a long time from entering Jerusalem. Why do it? They're doing a better job than we could ever do. If we leave them alone long enough, there'll be nobody left. That's sad. It was absolutely true. And it's sad. And uh, what's going on over here? I mean, what happened to, I thought Jews don't believe in violence, all the rest of it. This was a period in our history when all the rules fell by the wayside. You have 20, 30, 40 years of lack of law and order, 20, 30, 40 years of the outbreak of crime, 20, 30, 40 years when violence and personal violence becomes an acceptable part of, of societal behavior. It's not unheard of anymore. Uh, things that could be unimaginable in another era now all of a sudden are commonplace. And now add to that, uh, you have different factions involved in a real war, 
And uh, as I say before, the big tragedy was the fight between the Jews themselves. The, the other tragedy, no less big, was the fact this is not happening in a vacuum. The Roman army is right out there. When these uh, fights stop, uh, then, then the Romans will show up. They never stopped. They never stopped. The only thing that happened was that during this time, uh, as many may possibly recall, Nero died uh, through complicated circumstances. Uh, it was a big battle for who should be the next emperor. It's called the Year of the Four Emperors. You know, there was Galba and Alpha and Vitellius, and each one grabbed the power. And eventually Vespasian, who was the general in commanding the Roman army in Israel, realized, hey, I got the biggest army of all. You know, I mean, it's fighting the Jews, but it happened to be I have a very big army over here and have uh, supporters in the Egyptian garrisons and in the other Middle East, all the rest of it. I got as much right to, to, to be emperor as anybody else. And he went and took it. So that took a little time off because he had to go and secure the throne and kill all the other guys that he should take over in Rome. And all this was a respite for the Jews. But how did they use the respite? Shafting each other. Okay. I mean, it's mind-boggling. That's why I say when you actually start to do the numbers, you end up with the frightening fact that most of the Jews were killed by Jews. Okay? Now, believe me, the Romans killed plenty, but most of the Jews killed by Jews. And in the most horrific fashion possible. Okay? And eventually, uh, when Vespasian secured the throne of Rome, so he left his son Titus, as we all know, to uh, command the army and finish off the siege of Jerusalem. And Titus says, I can't even wait for the Jews to finish for killing yourself. He's never going to stop. And so he marched the army in and besieged Jerusalem right around Pesach time. Uh, which caused a temporary respite in the fighting between the factions. Okay? But anybody with sense could see by this time, I mean, look at the map, all of Israel had fallen to the Romans. The only thing left was Jerusalem. Uh, what chance do they have in the long run of holding out against the Roman army, which has taken every city, and as I say, done it very scientifically? You know, the handwriting is there on the wall. Uh, Titus, Vespasian and the others uh, were very clever. The Romans, as I say, for them, war was a science. You don't let emotion get involved over here. Nobody's fighting a battle if you don't have to. And so the Romans offered them terms of surrender, uh, that you have to come in back on the Roman Empire and this and that and the other, um, because why not offer it? You know, maybe the Jews will give up. You won't have to, uh, have to do the fighting. Anybody who's good at fighting knows that a fight is the last thing you want to do. If it's necessary, you do it. But if, if, if you can do without it, you do without it. Okay? And... Uh, um, Josephus himself, as many know, had been a Jewish general who uh, very cleverly had uh, switched sides. In other words, he commanded the fortress of Yadpot up there in the map, and then when his side was defeated, after heroic battles he describes in great detail, um, he was a hero, uh, he persuaded, well, it's a long story, but he persuaded his men to commit suicide and that he'll follow them, and then he didn't, he went over to the Romans. You see? Well, hear me out. And when he went to the Romans, he said he knew because he could tell they are going to win, and the war is pointless from this point on, and uh, he was not wrong. The interesting thing is that uh, he accompanies Titus and the army to Jerusalem and repeatedly goes out and makes speeches, he, sa he tells us, to the Jewish defenders saying, listen, you don't have a chance, the whole city is going to get wiped out and destroyed. Why do this? Give up. Listen, they'll offer you terms, it won't be so bad, and uh, yeah, it's not great, but it won't be so bad, and at least we'll save the city. And they tried to kill him, and they said, no, no, no. Well, the Gemara says pretty much the same thing, just not Josephus, that's all. In fact, the most graphic description of, uh, uh, of this, and I bet you most people don't know, that's why I read this very briefly, I read it to you, is in the Elvis of Nelson, not in the Gemara, in, uh, it's also in the Gemara in Gittin, but not in 
in such fashion. And it's, uh, I'll just read it to you. When Vespasian, or Titus, if you wish, came to destroy Jerusalem, Amalem, he said to the Jews, Shout him, you fools. Why are you trying to destroy the city and burn down the temple? What's wrong with you? You're not going to win anymore. What am I demanding of you? Send me an arrow or a bow as a, sign, no, as a token of surrender, and I'll leave. And I want you to give up, that's all. Uh, I know you wanted to win. Guess what? You're not going to win. Amrulo and the Jews responded to him, As we killed all those who came before you, you know, uh, Sancherev and uh, the early kings in the biblical times, uh, and we defeated them, so we'll defeat you as well. In other words, they were not hearing anything. So the famous Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, the head of the rabbi in Yerushalayim, when he heard the Shalom of Karlanche Yerushalayim Bamalim, he said the same thing. He said, What's going on over here? Why are you trying to destroy the city? All he's asking is for a bow and an arrow. No, it's just a white flag of surrender. You know, again, it's not what we wanted, but it's doable. Okay? Amrullah, uh, and they said the same thing, get out of the way, just so we kill the other, we'll, we'll kill him. And, uh, of course, we all know that that's what happened. Uh, the story is, whether you have this exact version of the story, or the way it's put in the Gemara, was very slightly differently, the key point is that smart people saw, and everybody in this room can see, that by the time you got to the beginning of the siege of Yerushalayim, with the whole rest of Eretz Yisrael totally conquered by the Romans, and without even too much trouble, and the Jews never even faced them in a major battle, uh, you know they're not going to win. So what do you do in a case you're not going to win? Get the best terms you can. Talk to a lawyer. Get the be- get the be- get- what do you do? Get-, get the best terms you can. What- what's your choice? They didn't see it that way. And the Gemara says, very famously, that uh, you know, the Yochum and Zaka was related to the head of the Zealots, and he said, you know, if I talk like this, they'll kill you and they'll kill me. And he had to pretend to be dead, as we all know, and get sneaked out of the city. I'm sure everybody knows that story. Uh, and according to the Gemara, Tom and Bobby, they wanted to stab the body just to make sure. What kind of people are we talking about over here? You want to stab Rabbi Yochum and Zakai? Uh, that's how far the bloodlust had gone. Okay? And when the siege began, it took uh, from the end of Pesach to Tishabov. So, how long is that? That's the month of uh, ERC Vantamus. Three months and a little more, three and a half months, not that long. The whole war from beginning to end may have taken a couple years although not of continuous fighting as we've seen. But uh, the siege itself, if you look at the, at the paper I gave out over here, anybody has a copy, it's not too hard to figure out. It's actually a very good map. Just look with me at the bottom to get the basic outline over here. Tisha is around the corner, and this way you'll see the essential facts. Uh, just read what it says at the bottom. The Romans penetrate the new city in the 7th of ER. Meaning if they started the siege right after Pesach, so what's that? The 22nd, 23rd of, Sivan, uh, of Nisan? So San Zavir is uh, two weeks later, right? So it took them two weeks or so to break into the first part of the city and establish a camp there. Then in three, on the 15th of year, they bust in the second wall. So it took them a week, right? So in other words, uh, less than a month, they had already broken into two-thirds of the city. The first wall, as you, if you follow those arrows, and if you don't, it doesn't matter, the first wall and the second wall, from, uh, from after Pesach to the middle of Eeyore. That's nothing. And then they took the, then as you can see, or if, if, I don't know if you 
you understand the uh, arrows here, but it doesn't matter. They take the fortress of Antonia by the 5th of Thomas. In other words, uh, that took a while. The whole ER and the whole Sivan, that's they're trying to get into the Temple Mount. The, the fortress of Antonia was the fortress, many know, uh, adjacent to the base of Migdash. I told you Herod built this huge fort to look down on it. So that was their goal. They wanted to capture the base of Migdash. But we're not talking forever either. So you tell me it took them, okay, it took them uh, a little less than, uh, you know, uh, what is it, seven weeks to take that. And Antonia is raised, that's what you say, and the enemy penetrates the Temple Mount on Shivasa Batamas. So now there's another 10 days or so. Uh, and then, eventually, the attack is mounted against the Temple itself on the 8th of Av. Why am I going through all this with you? It wasn't used, you know, it didn't, didn't take them 10 years. You see? It's a very scientific operation. You move in here, you break through this part, takes a week or two or three, you break through that part. They knew what they're doing. And everywhere through this siege, the Romans kept saying, or oh, you now give up, and now give up, and surrender. And I'm like, what were people thinking after they broke through the first wall and the second wall? You know, you know what I'm saying? There was a genius here at work, unfortunately, for self-destruction. That's, uh, uh, that's what we see. You know, it's, uh, it, the facts speak for themselves. It was, uh, it's a very uh, sad episode. And at the beginning of the siege, one of the first things the Romans did, naturally, was dig a, make a real blockade around the city. The Jews themselves burned their own supplies. The Havi Kafna, as the Gemara says, and it came with starvation. So starvation was the worst part of the siege. Most of the people died from the starvation. Uh, and two things happened. First of all, starvation is starvation. You know, people die. And second of all, the soldiers and everybody gets crazed with hunger and you act in savage fashion because there's no kashas when there's starving. You, know, you don't know what it's like. Nobody here should ever know what starvation is. All the rules are dropped. Okay? Um, Josephus has in a famous passage where he says, Um, one second here. That uh, for the wealthy, he's talking about the different Jewish uh, militia groups in there going around killing people for food and things like that. For the wealthy, it was just as fatal to remain in the city as to leave it. For in the pretext that a person was a deserter, many a person was killed for the sake of his property. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents of the soldiers kept pace with it, and every day both these horrors burned more fiercely. For since, since there was nowhere grain was to be seen, men would break into houses, and if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied their possession of it. If they found no food, they tortured the occupants as if they had concealed them more, more carefully. Proof whether one had food or not was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches. Those in good condition were seemed to be well provided with food. And so where is it? Well, those who were already wasting away were passed over. It was pointless to kill people who were going to die of starvation anyway. Many secretly bartered all their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they were rich, and barley if they were poor. That's exactly the case in the Gemara, where this rich lady, I'm sure you've heard it one time or another, send her servant, and, uh, you know, to get good grain or bad grain, and they ended with no grain, and that was it, and she died. See? Uh, many, and she said, she threw her money, in the Gemara says, she threw her money in the street, and said, what do I need all this for? Because we can't get no food. Uh, many secretly barter their, their single possession rich, then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses. In the extremity of hunger, many even ate their grain unground. Uh, while others baked it, guided by necessity and fear. Nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched, half-cooked from the fire, and torn into pieces. Pitiful was the fare and worthy of the tears. The spectacle 
while the strong had more than enough to weep and could only whimper. All human emotions yield to hunger, but of nothing is it so destructive as of shame. What at other times would claim respect is in a time of famine treated with contempt. So wives snatched food from their husbands, children from their fathers, and most pitiful all, mothers out of the very mouths of their infants. While their dearest ones were dying in their arms, they did not hesitate to deprive them of the life-giving morsels. But this way of... of and, uh, and if you think this is an exaggeration, let me just tell you quickly a story. If you think this is an exaggeration, I can tell you, it's not for me, thank God, my father was almost in Dachau. And uh, in the concentration camp. And he told me, I'm, I still remember the story, uh, one time a fight broke out in the barracks. And all these people were emaciated. And uh, they had to separate two guys who uh, choking each other. And they pulled them apart. It was a father and a son. And why are they choking each other? Uh, the son is trying to kill the, the, fa the father trying to kill the son because the son stole the father's food. So what do you do with that? Now, you can't condemn anybody. You don't, you know, nobody knows what it's like. You have no idea. They had an idea. They knew what it's like. It says, uh, so this is exactly true. This way of satisfying did not, come, uh, did not go unnoticed, for wherever the soldiers hovered, ready to snatch away even these pickings, whenever they saw a house with locked doors, they concluded that those inside were taking food, and instantly bursting the door open, they rushed and forced the bits of food out of their very jaws and brought them up again. They beat old men who were clutching their food. They dragged women by their hair as they concealed what was in their hands, and they had no pity for gray hairs or infants, but that picked them up as they clung to their scraps of food and dashed them to the ground. If anyone anticipated their entry by gulping now what they hoped to siege, seize, they were more, the soldiers were more savage as if they had been defrauded. One would shudder to hear the methods of torture they devised in their search for food. They blocked up with vetch the orifices and depicted the victims' bodies and drove sharp stakes up their posteriors. They inflicted on people tortures untold to make them admit the possession of a loaf of bread or reveal the hiding place of a handful of barley meal, and so on and so on and so forth. I, you know, the pages is. The pages is, and uh, and I'm not going to give you, you, you enough said. The point is that uh, what were they thinking of at this point? You know, you're going to start. How are you going to? They could surrender even now. They, they could give in even now. It's just that they weren't going to. That's where Abiyachan had himself taken out of state. He says, "There's nobody to talk to. They, 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 they've checked out." And so, who are the real victims of this? The Hamonam. The masses of the people who didn't have any power, and they were stuck there. And little by little, the hour is late, so I won't get to go into all the, de I don't have to, to go into all the details. Suffice it to say that uh, by the time you get to, uh, what was it again? The eighth of Av. Uh, so the Romans, very scientifically, had taken the Antonia fortress right next to the temple. That means they broke in, and the Shivasa Thomas, they broke into the Temple Mount. The base of Migdash, as anyone in Israel knows, was a complex of buildings inside the huge wall, the coastal Maravi being one of the outer walls, right? It's the, what do they call it, retaining wall or something, around the whole uh, development. The base of Migdash is the development, and during these, uh, what we call the three weeks, or now, they were fighting in the development, but they're trying to get into the main building itself, which is what we call the main temple, where, where, where the, uh, the, the, the Mizbech and the Kodesh Kodashim and all that is in there. Um, the eighth, they break into the, what we call the uh, Ezra Snashim area, all this is in great detail in, in, in Josephus, line by line, if you're interested in it. It's in less detail, but roughly the same story, roughly the same story in different places in the Gemara and the Medrash. All you have to do is, if you, if you consider this to be fun, you can sit them, you know, coordinate them and sit them side by side. But uh, the, the descriptions uh, more or less uh, come together. You know what I'm saying? 
the famine, the refusal to surrender, uh, the, 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 the Roman progress, the burning of their own supplies, uh, is all suicidal. It's suicidal. And uh, the people that we're talking about were so uh, fanatic that by the 8th of Av, uh, the Romans had taken the area and were ready to charge the doors of the base of Migdash. They cleared away, because that's what you got to do. You have, you have your engineers, you know, to clear the path to bring up the, uh, the, the infantry, because they can't charge in rubble. So it took them days to clear a path to be able to charge the temple gates. Um, according to him, there was a, the Jews' countercharge. The Romans chased them back and entered in the area. It doesn't matter the details. Suffice to say that on the 9th of all, they busted in. And they were fighting there all day long. There were plenty of civilians. They, they did not expect the Romans would come there, in there. There were plenty of people there that thought it's a regular day in the siege of the base of Mishnah. They got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And a huge massacre in, in, ensued. He described it as an eyewitness scene that by the time it was finished, you know, you, you couldn't walk on ground. It was all covered with bodies. And the Romans were chased, stepping over dead bodies, chasing over other victims. And more and more and more. There's a big debate, but it doesn't concern me. Did Titus plan Lechatkilis to destroy the base of Mishnah? Did he not? Uh, there's what to talk about there, but it, it, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter because the uh, temple was doomed as a result of attitudes. The soldiers who were fighting, the Biryon, the Zealots, were so fanatical that uh, if you look on the map that I just gave you, it's not true that it was all over in Tishabov. Look at the last uh, two, uh, one, seven and eight on the bottom. The legions take the lower city on the 11th above, meaning on Tishabov. And on the 10th of August, we know, the Temple Mount was taken and burned. And everybody was killed and destroyed and burned. But there's still the rest of the city. And so the Romans over the 10th and the 11th above took the area of the Yerushalayim on the other side of the base of Migdash, but that's not over either. And then in number 8, Titus attacks the upper city on 7th of El. Yerushalayim is not conquered until the 8th of El. Meaning, after the base of Migdash was already completely destroyed and burned. And after a million people, I don't know how many, were killed. And all the these guys were still fighting in sewers, like in the Warsaw Ghetto, a month later. Until finally, a month after Tishabov, when the 9th of Elo, uh, the last ones that were either killed or captured or, or things like that. Um, what's the point of everything that I'm uh, doing over here? We Jews, obviously, have a genius for many things. Right? Uh, certainly for religion, and certainly for Torah, and certainly for Chachmah. Uh, you know, sciences and things like, you know, the Jews, as I said before, we've never been quantitatively big people, but we've always been qualitatively big people. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes you have to look in the mirror and say the Jews have also uh, a genius for self-destruction. Uh, nothing here makes any sense. Right? Uh, the sages already early on, who personified in Yochum and Zakai, saw the handwriting where they said, you know, stop this. It's, like I said before, just call the deal off. You know, uh, like, like, it, it's like people sometimes, uh, the accountant will tell you, the lawyer will tell you, just declare chapter 11, you know? It's, it, the, the business is not going anywhere. Get, get what you can out of it. And the person uh, irrationally says, no, I want to keep doing it anyway. And here, you're taking down the base of Megas, you're taking about it, it's we've never recovered. Uh, I share... These events, and they're only a little bit. You see, I'm jumping over a lot of details to try to give you the big picture. Uh, to make the point that we are required every year when we revisit the three weeks and we revisit the nine days 
and we revisit the Tisha B'Av, to look at the past and realize uh, what uh, we have within us, and to always make sure, uh, to the best of our ability, uh, that these uh, things don't come out of the bottle. Uh, you know, the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael, um, I, w I wrote about this once, you know, Machen Begin, all that, he very famously back in the 1940s, when it looked like it was very easy for a war to break out between the Irgun and the Haganah and the others, and there was good reason for war to break out, and a lot of people on both sides wanted to break out, and at that time, he said, I guess, he says, are you Reverend Josephus? Do you have any idea what happened before? Is this the way we want to go? So we'll all kill each other, the Arabs will take over, the British will take over, you know, nothing is worth that. And so, when Chazal tell us, with this I conclude, that uh, Ba'is Rishon was destroyed because of because of sins. And Ba'is Shani was destroyed, as we all know, because of Sinas Chinam. You see that they were not talking about Sinas Chinam. They were talking about Sinas Chinam. They were not talking about, uh, I don't like you the way you dress, and, you know, the school you go to or something, like that, the garden variety, Sinas Chinam. They meant civil war, literally, in which Jews, uh, we have within us this capacity that we always have to suppress, that uh, things can really get out of hand and we can, can shaft each other. If we, like a patient, are willing to look at the disease, uh, then there's hope for a cure. If you refuse to acknowledge you have these, uh, you know, illnesses within you, or the possibility, uh, then you risk a revival of what happened before. Uh, this is really what the Chazal had in mind when they said that once a year at least, there's something called Tisha B'Av. And once a year, you revisit the past. And once a year, you mourn over the base of Migdash. And it doesn't mean simply you mourn over the base of Migdash. That's true also. We're going to have the Kino soon in which we talk about all the wonderful things that it had. But uh, you see now the picture was much more complicated, both according to outside sources and the Torah sources. The picture was much more complicated. What they really want you to mourn For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.